Uh, don't want to stop people from enjoying their lunches, um, but we have a special treat uh, for right after your brownie. Um, we're uh, super excited to have Barry Posen with us today to talk to us at lunch. Um, Barry Posen is the Ford International Professor of Political Science at MIT, where he is also the director of the MIT Security Studies Program. Uh, he serves on the executive committee of Seminar 21. Uh, he's written a few books you might have heard of, um, The Sources of Military Doctrine, uh, Inadvertent Escalation, Conventional War and Nuclear Risks, and a, a small book um, that I hear is pretty good called Restraint, uh, A New Foundation for U.S. Grand Strategy. Um, uh, his books win all the best awards. Uh, to, anyway, um, he's the author of uh, all sorts of articles you need to read, um, most recently including The Case for Restraint, uh, Command of the Commons, uh, among many others. He's been a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, a guest scholar at CSIS, uh, a Woodrow Wilson Center fellow, and most recently was visiting fellow at the John Sloan Dickey Center at Dartmouth College. Please join me in welcoming Barry Posen. Hi there. Uh, I want to thank Cato and Trevor and Ben Friedman, all those who organized and made this event possible. I'm pleased to be here. Um, you know, Brendan showed this morning that if you're in this business long enough, you'll write something that someone can quote in order to tilt with you later in your life. So um, uh, you can probably, if you go back far enough, you'll find me on every side of every issue. Uh, I don't know if that's a sign of flexibility or confusion or, or what. Uh, you know, when I was asked to do this, I, I kind of had a hard problem because I've talked about restraint many times, including talking about it here, and wrote this book about it, and I, I almost can't stand the sound of my own voice on the subject anymore, I have to be candid. Um, but be that as it may, I'm going to try and at least rise to the occasion. Um, for some reason, the last few uh, restraint conferences that I've attended have put me in the mind to revisit sort of concepts and definitions, some of the key ideas that, um, you know, that we talk about when we we argue about this, um, this strategy. And so I, I want to talk about those. Uh, I want to talk liberal about liberal hegemony as a policy versus liberal versus unipolarity as a power structure, because I think these things are often confused. So I want to talk about liberal hegemony as a policy. I want to talk about its nature and purposes. I want to talk about its problems. I want to talk a little bit about unipolarity and it's relate, the relationship between discussions about unipolarity and discussions about liberal hegemony, and maybe try and convince you why, at least why I'm caring about these distinctions right now. And maybe this is a little more IR theory kind of stuff than some of you came here for today, and I, you've already had some of that this morning, but um, there's gonna be a little bit more. Um, liberal hegemony is my term, and actually its supporters term. I think John Eikenberry titled the term. It's a grand strategy. It's a policy with a purpose. Liberal hegemony is not an established fact. America doesn't have liberal hegemony over the whole globe. It might like to have liberal hegemony over the whole globe, but the ideas underlying liberal hegemony define the purposes of our foreign policy and the measures we use. As Charlie pointed out earlier, there's a power aspect of liberal hegemony and there's a kind of an ideational and principle aspect of liberal hegemony. We call it liberal because of the strategy's medium and long-term purposes, which is to say the spread of democracy and human rights and market economies. 
There's an embedded assumption in the strategy that this is somewhat easy to do. Um, there's a commitment to international institutions, both as a means and as an end. I think ultimately the strategy aims at a transformation of international politics as it has existed into something else. In other words, when I talk about liberal hegemony as being a kind of a, a purpose, ultimately they're hoping that the hegemony will fall away and we will simply have a liberal international society in which realist principles of international politics simply no longer hold. This is the dream, right? Seldom stated, sounds quite naive when stated this way, but when you listen to the language and you, and you listen to sort of the visceral commitment of proponents, I think there's a transformational notion embedded in this strategy. A little bit vague about when this might occur. Now the hegemony part of this is about power and about power relations. First thing to, to observe is that in contrast to some past hegemonic systems, it's not really about occupation. This is a kind of a different kind of hegemony. It does leverage the unusually favorable post-Cold War U.S. power position in hard power to try and bring about a liberal world order, as well as to preserve that position. And it leverages a little bit of power after power for its own sake. And as part of that hard power advantage, there was a general military superiority, which went from being a, a nice, happy accident to being the sine qua non of American security forever. A kind of a, I don't want to say a cult, but it, it borders on a cult to a specifically military technological kind of superiority that should be sustained forever, and there's a sine qua non for the workings of this system. As observed this morning, the prevention of new nuclear states to ensure that the costs of hegemony remain um, reasonable and that the risks remain under control. Um, there's an economic aspect to this, and I'm not the best person to be talking about it. Um, it's a bit more ambiguous, as our own policies allow others' economies to grow and thrive. China becomes a peer competitor in part by trading with us. Right? One side of the Potomac River is interested in encouraging that trading. The other side of the Potomac River is interested in competing with the military power made possible by those trading relationships. Now, we for ourselves seek or hope to preserve a better economy, if not a bigger one. And I'll come back to this in a second. There's some hope that writing the rules of international tra trade will preserve some extra measure of U.S. influence and maybe superiority. We're interested in maintaining lots of influence and lots of access. To those who live in areas where we want lots of access and lots of influence, they may perceive our activities as domination. We would never talk about them that way ourselves, but others on the receiving end may, and I think have, perceived them that way. In general, liberal hegemonists seek to write the rules of the international system in ways that might preserve U.S. influence even if American power wanes. This is the idea you might find in anything that John Eikenberry has written. Now, the question is, how hegemonic is the U.S.? In other words, when we, you know, people like, like me call the strategy liberal hegemony, others will say, well, America doesn't really have hegemony. And I think that's correct. The United States is not the, the global hegemon. The degree of American hegemony is significant, but not, doesn't really gird the globe. We are strongest in Mackinder's rimlands, Japan, Korea, Oceania, 
Western and Southern Europe. These areas are knitted into a global trading system, knitted into a military alliance system, knitted into a system of democracies. This is sort of the, the mother church of liberal hegemony. In the, what McKinder called the heartland, here I'm referring to Halford McKinder, the geopolitical theorist of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In the heartland, China, Russia, Central Asia, maybe even India, these, these are not in the liberal, liberal hegemonic system. They relate to it, they trade with it, they have exchanges with it, they profit from it, but they're not really in the system. The US has inched forward with its liberal hegemonic system when it could do so cheaply. NATO enlargement was cheap. The costs are starting to emerge, as a few people predicted, but at the time it seemed very cheap. In recent years, people who are watching the Obama administration may have observed that in Asia, we are creeping forward a little cat feet and bringing Burma into this system and maybe even Vietnam into this system. I often observe that if some military officer, Rip Van Winkle, had gone to sleep in the middle of the Tet Offensive and awakened to read a newspaper article, he would scratch his head and say, did we win this thing? <laughs> no, we didn't win this thing. Politics just works in strange ways. Some cases, the Americans have misapprised costs, lurched forward, and then stumbled, as we did in Iraq, in Libya, and Syria. Right? We bargain with the heartland outsiders for access to the system, mainly economic to the liberal order. Now, liberal hegemony is a work in progress. Progress has been costly, and especially costly relative to the 1990s. And it may even be true that relative to the 1990s, liberal hegemony is backfooted because of the costs it's confronted, right, and the resistance of some of the places we've tried to work. Now, liberal hegemony is not synonymous with unipolarity or the unipolar moment. Unipolarity, you remember Charles Krauthammer's famous article immediately after the Cold War ended, the unipolar moment. Unipolarity, at least for international relations theorists, is a description of the distribution of capabilities of the raw economic and military power in the world. We can disagree about what these are, how to measure them, and whether the unipolar moment is enduring, is waning quickly, or is even growing. I personally think the unipolar moment is waning. Right? I am bemused by creative efforts by pundits and political scientists to find new and creative metrics that show great gaps in favor of the United States to suggest that the unipolar moment is not waning. And these analysts will pay less attention to the more traditional measures we have used, such as US gross domestic product at purchasing power parity or at market prices. These kinds of measures show the Chinese as already being either a peer of the United States at PPP or half the United States GDP at market prices. This is much higher than the raw economic potential that the Soviet Union ever had. Right? So they're already generating potential that by our historical experience looks pretty significant. Now, this is not to say that even if, say, the National Intelligence Council's prediction of Chinese growth turn out to be right, and China's GDP at market prices equals our own in mid-century, that doesn't mean that by mid-century we would prefer to play their hand. It just means that their hand could be good enough to make it very hard for us to play our hand, 
to play it for high stakes and to play it in as many places as the liberal hegemonic strategy seems to demand. Unipolarity makes liberal hegemony easier because it reduced costs. It made liberal hegemony very seductive in the years after the Cold War ended. It made it more tempting for elites who, who saw a lot of potential out there in the world. It made it easier to contemplate particular actions because no one could argue, well, if you do that, you won't have any power left to oppose the Soviet Union or to oppose China. You couldn't make those kinds of arguments in those days. It was easy for entrepreneurs to say, we can do this, and someone would say, no, no, you can't. It's going to be costly. What's the opportunity cost? There, there is none if you're not trying to contain another great power. Elites also face fewer domestic constraints, domestic political costs, if they could avoid or obscure costs which is much easier to do when you have a huge power disparity in international politics than when not. But the important point here is that the waning of unipolarity would not make liberal hegemony impossible. It just will make it more costly. The faster it wanes, the more costly it will become, and therefore the more problematical in US domestic politics. Now, wh why does the distinction between unipolarity and liberal hegemony matter? Advocates of restraint oppose liberal hegemony because of its costs, and arguably because of great skepticism about the achievability of its goals. We have certain theoretical underpinnings that make us have these doubts. Many of us belong to the school of international relations called realism. Realists think that states are pretty much out for themselves, that states value their own sovereignty, that states, because of the condition of anarchy, are concerned when they see a great and energetic power in the world, and they will react if they can. And hence, you will see balancing behavior. States do what they can to improve their own capabilities internally. They make common cause with one another. This is something that, that many restrainers believe is an inherent problem that liberal hegemony confronts. It confronted it a little bit in its early days, and only a little because we were so powerful. But if and as the distribution of capabilities changes a little bit, you'll see more balancing. A second problem you see is cheap riding and reckless driving, which was talked about this morning. Um, many of our allies do much less for the common defense than we have asked, than their own defense ministries say is intelligent, and certainly much less than we do. Um, it's an open question whether the fact that they do less forces us to do more, but I think in many cases it does. I think we have to spend more because they spend less, right? This is an additional cost of making so many extravagant security promises. There are some things that, that you know, I alluded to a little bit in my book, but maybe not as much as I ought to have. Um, liberal hegemony seems to be a bellicose grand strategy in the sense that it's often at war. Robert Work, who has a job across the river, uh, used to have in a briefing slide that he would give, you know, he, he had a slide where he showed months of war per epoch, right? Um, during the Cold War versus the post-Cold War world. In terms of being at something that looks like war, the United States was at something that looks like war twice as often in the post-Cold War world as it was during the Cold War. There's something warlike about this strategy, right? Now, what is that? Well, one problem, which I did talk about in the book, is there's a kind of frontier expansion. If you view the entire world as your oyster, you have really wide, broad frontiers. There's always going to be a problem opposite the frontier somewhere. 
And there's always going to be some group on our side of the frontier that argues we must expand the frontier to internalize the problem on the other side in order to solve it. So there's a dynamism there, right, which seems to be work causing. The second is because we've asserted interest in so many places, um, we are quite obsessed with credibility, just in the way we were in the Cold War, right? Um, we think there are potential challengers everywhere, and therefore we want to deter potential challenges everywhere. So challenges anywhere tend to lure us into, into using military force or making threats or making commitments in order to deter all the other potential challenges that could, could occur. So there's a, another dynamism inside liberal hegemony that seems to produce, produce conflict. Now, people in the restraint camp, many of them have a particular view of military power, which is not often discussed anymore. I would say a Clausitzian view of military power, and that is that military power is a blunt and costly instrument. It's difficult to use military power to achieve precise and refined goals, and it's easy to produce unintended consequences and ripple effects. Right? Some of this was discussed this morning. Right? So, Liberal hegemony imagines that military force is a scalpel, that it can be used to lance boils, solve little problems, it's the, the, the actions will be contained, and then you move on to the next problem, whereas I think people in the restraint camp are much more skeptical that it's easy to get what you want and only what you want when you use military power. those of us who are critical of liberal hegemony are very conscious of identity politics in the world, the power of identity politics. Right? You will hear, you know, those of you who study international relations theory, you know, the, the book that we all had to read in our, our, our youth was Hans Morgenthau's Politics Among Nations. And people always talk about Hans Morgenthau as the, 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 the realist who talked about states as if they were billiard balls. Right? There's a hundred pages in the middle of politics among nations about nationalism. Right? Hans Morgenthau, the great realist, was obsessed with nationalism, the, the, the major form of identity politics of the 19th and 20th century. Right? Nationalism is a powerful political force. We don't exactly know why. Right? The precise ways that it causes conflict still a little bit murky. But these things travel together. Nationalism and conflict travel together. And other forms of identity politics seem to be powerful again. So religion is another powerful political tool to mobilize people. Right? So there's a lot of identity politics in the world. And it seems like there's getting to be more of it, right? including in the West. So when the 90s, you know, we began seeing civil wars in the 1990s on the periphery of the Western world. Everyone said, oh, this is, very, this is terrible. These nationalist rivalries are terrible. We must go in and lance these boils and bring democracy and peace and, and end these kind of atavistic conflicts. Right? But if you look at, say, politics in the West in the last two or three years, many Western societies are now deep in this kind of identity politics themselves. We're now at risk of the British leaving you know, the European Union because they're tired of the heavy boot of, the, of Brussels, which is oppressing the good English yeomanry, right? The Catalans want to get out of Spain, right? There's, there's a lot of nationalism even in the Western world, right? And one of the things we do observe is that um, uh, self-aware peoples don't view outsiders who come to them bearing gifts, such as reorganizations of their local politics, as being, you know, that helpful, 
right? They, they would prefer, even if how they do their politics is ugly, they would still prefer to do it themselves, right? So when we show up with our plans and projects, there's likely to be more resistance than you might expect. Second, um, and this is a long-standing observation, which is also to be found in Clausewitz, by the way, uh, nationalism, uh, identity politics, um, these increase states' ability to generate military power, and particularly increase their ability to generate military power for close-in kind of fighting. It generates infantrymen. So liberal hegemony encounters and indeed engenders a kind of nationalist resistance that has as its core military capability large numbers of 18-year-old, usually males, right, who can be educated, trained, induced, to fight up close and personal and to take casualties in a way that we don't really like to do anymore in our country, right? So another reason why restrainers are dubious about the democracy spreading um, aspects of the liberal hegemony strategy. So in sum, because of liberal hegemony's cause and also because we doubt the possible achievement of its ultimate purposes. You know, because we're basically realists, because we basically respect nationalism, we don't think the world can be transformed. Right? So we don't see the pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. It's, a, it's like a, a mouse on a treadmill. So because of its costs and because we doubt the achievement of its ultimate purposes, many of us would oppose liberal hegemony even if we thought that the unipolar moment would persist. So I'm coming around back to my original observation. Right? Even if we thought that the unipolar moment would persist. And I think if you talk to people who support restraint, you'll find quite a variation in their opinions about the durability of the unipolar moment. I happen to be in the skeptical camp, but there are other people who are not. Right? And I made fun of various measures that you know, people will surface to try and show that the Americans are still comfortably on top. Some of those measures do show the Americans on top. The question is what do they tell you about international politics? Now, just to close, um, liberal hegemony supporters, support, supporters of primacy, which is a close cousin, and opponents of restraint, I think, muddy the waters deliberately when they term all critics of the present policy declinists. We're now in the realm of Washington polemics. They also term restraint policies retreat. I think these labels have to be resisted. It's in the interest of those who are critical of liberal hegemony to try and keep the two issues distinct. And I myself have been guilty of failure to preserve these distinctions. The world may or may not remain unipolar. The US may or may not be in relative decline vis-a-vis -vis other great powers. But liberal hegemony is an unnecessary, costly, and quixotic grand strategy in its own terms. Thank you. Where are you, Trev, and what do you want me to do? <laughs> okay, I'll, uh, do, do you want to do the pointing or shall I? I can point, sir. Uh, John Utley with the American Conservative Magazine. Can, can you address now, we have something new called R2P, which is right to protect uh -huh. from the left. 
Responsibility uh, to protect. Responsibility, uh, excuse me. It maybe it should be R squared 2P, uh, right and responsibility to protect. Could you, that's so it's rebirthed, or could you address how that plays into the, your, your yeah. points? Yeah, I should, <laughs> since I've been to so many conferences and talked about it so much, I should have a, a canned rejoinder to the uh, responsibility to protect. Um, well, first of all, this is still a debated proposition, right? It's, this is not a law, it's a norm. So this is a project of norm entrepreneurs, people who are comfortably, I think, in the middle of the liberal hegemony project, right? And it, it has the, the um, it's, a deliberately, it's, a it's a deliberate legalistic and I won't say theological, but theoretical attempt to undermine the norm of sovereignty, right? Now, in a realist world, the norm of sovereignty, if states believe it, and they kind of did for a while for their own interest, it's a peace principle. Right. It basically cuts down on the number of it cuts down on the on number of wars by decreasing the legitimacy of, in, of intervening in other people's politics in order to tell them how to live. Right. The responsibility to protect people say their 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 view is different, which is when when internal politics gets really ugly, outsiders must come to the rescue. Now, why aren't they worried? Which they should be, that in an attempt to bring about an internal good in fractured and riven countries, which is to end the killing. They may be undermining a principle that has been conducive to some peace among great powers. Right? Now, why don't they care? Right? And I, I don't have an answer for you, but I think if you look at when R2P emerged as a norm, it emerged at a time when it had become second nature to believe that the liberal states had all the power. Right? So that by eroding this norm, you weren't putting ideational weapons in the hands of China or in the hands in the hands of Russia, which I think you are. So I personally think this is not a good development. We should understand that it's a norm. It's not international law, which is to say it's weaker. And I, I should say that the, the people who purvey this norm would like you to believe the norm is hegemonic, that everyone now agrees, right? And I think those of us who are skeptical about the potential for this norm to cause more conflict should just push back and say, look, this norm is in dispute and we dispute it. And here's why we dispute it. This gentleman. Thank you. Hi, my name is Luke Phillips. I'm with uh, the millennial group Action for America. Uh, so my question for you is, how exactly does the doctrine of restraint differ from the statecraft practiced by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger? Because I sense a lot of parallels, and I was wondering what you would like to think to say about that. Well, I'm not going to. Well, I, I could turn this into the um, you know a, a criticism I received just the other day when I gave this talk, which is this is just a narrow real politic kind of strategy, and it ignores American norms and values, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Um, I think you have to distinguish between real politics as a set of tools and tactics versus you know objectives. Right? Um, they were in the Cold War, and they were trying to best an adversary that they still thought was pretty strong at a time when they thought we were getting weak. Right? And I'm not going to sit here and say that I agree with what their position was at the time, but given their characterization of the situation, many of the tools they use are tools that I would have used. Right? The question is, and this was raised earlier this morning, about what world we live in. Are we living in a bipolar world where um, uh, there's a potential hegemon in Eurasia that's so dangerous to us 
so has so much potential to actually agglomerate the resources of those in its penumbra that it could change the way we live in this country. And I don't think we live in that world. Uh, I'm not sure we still lived in that world then. They thought we did. I mean, with the sort of the perspective of history, maybe the bipolar order was already beginning to, to crumble because maybe the Russians were just beginning to hit the part of their history where they began to came apart because their economy got quite bad in the 70s and they continued to get worse, right? So my view is a simple one, which is we should, you know, like any realist anywhere, I come back to thinking about American security in the first instance, but there's a range of debate, as you know, among realists about you know, what it takes to you know, ensure your security. Offensive realists sort of believe that states chase power after power for its own sake until they run into a great big un, you know, uncrossable barrier. Right. Defensive realists tend to think that states try and get as much security as they can. I mean, as much security as they need, right? Um, I, I'm sort of in the defensive realist camp, uh, in, you know, slightly, right? Um, and when I look at the world today, I think the United States position is, is really very good, right? So there's not many ruthless things the United States has to do of an active kind in order to protect our position. People earlier today were talking about you know, China and how you think about China. And I think this is a big, this is a debate even among people who might you know, characterize themselves as sort of having similar views. So I think John Mearsheimer, for example, is more concerned about China than I am. I think John has more energetic policies he wants to use against China than I am. I think you know, there is still some danger that arises from hegemons in regions of the, other regions of the world. Right? There's some level of regional dominance elsewhere in the world that would give me pause. But I, I, I find that when I think about these things, I have a hard time getting really excited about it. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's because I've assimilated the kind of nuclear revolution ideas. I think states that have nuclear weapons are pretty secure. And um, I guess, you know, going back to another issue this morning, you know, if China turns into a really big problem, then there are, there are, there are other solutions, right? You know, the, nuclearization of Japan and, and South Korea are a solution. You know, why don't we worry about China marching north? Why don't we worry about China marching west? Because to the west, it, there's nuclear India. To the north, there's nuclear Russia. To the south and to the east, there's a lot of smaller countries, none of them with nuclear weapons, and those are all in our penumbra. Um, if China gets really, really strong, as Charlie was talking about earlier, right? as if it got really, really strong, than to argue that we could contain it in the old way that we contained the Soviet Union, where we, we, we carried the weight, where we took, we took considerable risks to, 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 to make the deterrent threat credible. If you want to try and do all that against a, a genuine peer competitor, a country that's basically got your kind of GDP and your kind of technology in its neighborhood, right? I'm, th I'm thinking that maybe I would prefer the locals to be able to defend themselves a little better and that nuclear weapons would be a good way to do it. Over here. Yeah, I enjoyed your talk. Uh, Doug Brooks with the International Stability Operations Association. We represent the contractors that support peacekeeping and stability operations. Um, a lot of our discussions keep coming back to China, uh, but I'm not sure that China is so much of a threat that, that we tend to make it out. I mean, the Department of Defense certainly loves to use China as a foil, but um, China's, uh, it seems to me that its, its interests have more often than not merged with ours more recently than, than in the past. And in terms of international uh, issues and stuff, more often than not they agree with us. 
and their issues seem to be more internal that they're worried about, quite rightly so. I think they have a lot of things they need to sort out, but, but I think we, aren't we making too much of China, and is that you know, a derailing sort of where we should be going in terms of international affairs? Well, there's, uh, there's making too much versus you know, pounding the threat drum, right? I mean, the, the growth of the Chinese economy is the biggest thing that's happened in international politics in the last 20 years. And I think it would be odd to not, if, you're, if you come from the kind of theoretical tradition I come from, a realist tradition, that this observation is hard to escape. And it sounds silly when you make it, right? And the, the next big thing, if it happens, will be if India can find a way to follow along behind China. So that will be another you know, big thing, right, if, 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 if it comes to fruition. Now, the question is, you're asking a question that I think is, 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 is well taken, which is, how many actual conflicts of interest do we have with China, right? The things that could become conflicts of interest, and what constitutes a conflict of interest in international politics? China's a trading state, we're, in trading, we're a trading state, we live in that same world. Conflict between us means the trading system is gone, right? We're more capable of dealing with the, the disappearance of that trading system right now than they are, right? So you would have thought that maybe there's some limits to, to their ambitions. So on the other hand, some of the issues on their periphery that we've decided to take on, the gentleman at my table was making the observation earlier, are issues that are close to identity politics in China, which are close to essentially regime legitimacy. And these internal problems that you're talking about in China make the regime very concerned about its legitimacy, right? And they, tr they, they, they and the people, for whatever you know, complicated chemistry makes it emerged, you know, Chinese nationalism's alive and well, right? And they're very neuralgic about certain things, right? So they're very neuralgic about Taiwan. They're very neuralgic about things they, th they think were once Chinese many years ago. And they have sharp elbows when they assert their rights to those things. And you can see that they're realists in their own right. When they tell us they want to deal with the people on their periphery separately on each territorial dispute. Well, there's a reason for that, because they're giants, and each of those countries is pretty small. They're going to win those arguments, right? So we have political relations with all those countries, and you know, depending on your view of military power and how it works, right? we have, an, we have some kind of interest in those countries maintaining their sovereignty. Right? So it, is, it does set up for some kind of conflict of interest. Now, how intense is it really? Do we mean, to, we have the potential to annihilate China? No. Do we have the intent? No. Do they have the potential? No. Right? Our social system is so divergent. Do they want us to all speak Chinese? Do we want them to speak English? It's not even, doesn't even come up. Right? So there's lots of things that used to be in the mix when countries were in conflict with each other that aren't. You know, what we call second image factors and in international relations, things at the state level. Right? So, I think this is why, you know, this business about containing China or pivoting, it should be less rhetoric. I'm not saying there should be more action, maybe a little bit less action, but it, it, things need, you, you, need to, you really do need to be able to carry out two policies at the same time, but you also need to be able to not talk so damn much about them, right? And we're very bad in this town at keeping our mouths shut in a way that we be supportive of diplomacy. Instead, if you make a deal with somebody on one small thing, you're pilloried for committing treason. 